We've been looking at a quote from the founder of the Salvation Army called William Booth, who at the turn of the 20th century was asked the question about what he saw were the dangers facing the next century, and he answered it this way. I consider the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. And we've been looking at those statements because we know even here in the 21st century, these same issues still confront us. These same problems still plague us. And if we are going to be the people that God has called us to be, we do need to understand what the Word of God is saying about these fundamental truths so that we can put them into practice and make a difference in our lives. We began with religion without the Holy Spirit. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our world? That the Holy Spirit came to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the reason we're even confused about sin in the first place is because we don't understand who Jesus Christ truly is. But when we understand that God the Father loved us, as we've been singing about this morning, he wants to reconcile the breach that was created by sin so that our relationship with him is broken, but that relationship can be repaired. And so the Holy Spirit goes through the world convicting people of their sin, bringing them to the knowledge of who Jesus Christ truly is. And then we know that we need Christ, for Christianity without Christ means that we've reduced Christianity to just another kind of religion. That we can figure out there's any way to make it in this world. Everybody eventually gets to the same path. But the problem with that idea is if sin is fundamentally the problem in our society, then the remedy for sin has to come from God. And that remedy is, in fact, Jesus Christ. That he came in the world first and foremost to be our Savior. He went to the cross and died there so that his blood would be the payment for our sin. And because that's the only way sin can be removed, the only thing that can make a difference in taking away sin, Jesus is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. Every other path depends on us to work our way there, but we can't be good enough. We can never work it out. The love of God, the grace of God came to make the way for us to be reconciled to the Father possible, and that was through Jesus Christ. And today we look at that next statement, forgiveness without repentance. If the sin question actually is handled at the cross, and we know that Jesus Christ came into the world to lay down his life for us, to redeem us and be our Savior, and that his blood is the sufficient payment for our sins, how then can we truly be forgiven for our sins? In fact, what does it even mean to be forgiven? Because that's what we want to talk about today. If Jesus Christ is the answer, then how do we connect to that answer and know, in fact, that we are truly forgiven for our sins? Now, Hebrews 9.22 states this. It says, 
in talking about the role of the blood of Jesus Christ. It says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, we know the only way our sins can be forgiven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing we do, nothing we say, there's no formula for our sins to be forgiven. It is the blood of Jesus Christ being the sufficient payment for our sins that makes it possible for our sins to be taken away. That means that we need to believe that Jesus Christ indeed is the Savior and that his way is the only way. It means believing he is the Son of God. It means believing that the blood that he shed is indeed the payment for our sins. And when our sins are taken away, they are gone. Animal blood could cover sin, but it couldn't really take it away. But Jesus Christ takes away our sin, and we are declared righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And once we are declared righteous, that means that sin no longer has a hold of us. Sin is no longer controlling us. Sin is not the means by which our whole life is shaped. We can now be shaped by the Holy Spirit in his blood. We want to be declared righteous. We want the blood of Jesus Christ indeed to take away our sins. But does it all rest on what Jesus has done for us? Or is there a part that we need to play in the process as well? And this is where repentance comes in. Because to truly have your sins forgiven is really a two-way process. The way has been made by God. We did not make the way ourselves. We never could make the way to salvation. God has made that way possible. But for us to admit that we need our sins forgiven requires repentance on our part. See, God is the one who has been offended. God is the one who has been betrayed by a creation that did not want him in their lives, would not follow his laws, turned their backs on him. But he didn't give up on us. He made that way possible. But that way of forgiveness is extended to those who will admit that indeed they are sinners and need the blood of Jesus Christ in their lives. After his ascension into heaven, when the Holy Spirit was given to the disciples and they began what we call the church today and began to preach the gospel message to a world that needed to hear it, it was fundamental in all that they're teaching that in order to have the blood applied to your sins, repentance needed to be a part of that process. In Acts 2, starting in verse 37, Peter put it this way in his first sermon. It says, when the people heard this, what he was talking about, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The question they were asking is, what do you have to do to be saved? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. If you want to respond to the message of Jesus Christ, know that your sins are truly forgiven. 
Peter said, then first of all, you have to repent. Along with repentance comes baptism and in the infilling of the Holy Spirit. John preached that same message in 1 John 1.9. He said, if we'll repent of our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, that's the consistent message of the New Testament when it comes to forgiveness of sins, that we need to repent. We need to admit that we are headed in the wrong direction and that we have sinned. And along with admitting we're sinners, we're admitting we need a change of direction. We need to go in a different way. That the way we've been going, the ideas that we've held, the, the concepts that have driven our lives are structured by sin and, and take us to the wrong place. And so we have to admit that we need to change. We need to turn around. We need to go in a different direction because that's fundamentally what repentance is. It means to be different. Paul talked about this again in Acts 26 when he was before King Agrippa explaining to him the gospel message. In verse 19 he said, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. See, forgiveness is linked to repentance. And if you try to separate the two, then you're going to run into trouble. Because there seems to be a concept now that somehow forgiveness is unconditional. That all of us eventually will be forgiven. That you really don't have to repent of your sins because the love of Jesus Christ is for everybody. Uh, Jesus came into the world. We love John 3.16. You know, to save the whole world. And he did make a way. And he does want to save the whole world. But can you be saved without repenting? Is his love so unconditional that repentance is not required? Because when you read through the New Testament and you read what all of the apostles wrote when they were preaching about the gospel message from Peter to John to the rest of them to Paul and everyone else that Paul taught, that message was consistent. Repent. Confess your sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. That means that repentance or forgiveness is not extended to people who don't repent. We have to admit that we're wrong before that grace can be extended to us to truly have our sins forgiven. So what is repentance? What does it all mean? Well, it means, first of all, you've got to acknowledge that you've broken God's law. That's what sin is. Sin is doing the opposite of what God has told you to do. When you break God's law, you sin. And he says repentance means turning away from sin and recognizing the only answer to sin is indeed the blood of Jesus Christ. We have to have faith in who Jesus is and what he does. But then repentance also means our deeds change. 
And people can see that we are living a different lifestyle. Because true repentance does mean we turn around. If we're going this way and we repent, it means we're going this way next. It is a different way of looking at the world. It's a different lifestyle. Because true repentance means the acknowledgement that you need to change. So how do we know if we've truly repented? What kind of repentance is God looking for? In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul wrote it this way. He says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The New Living Translation, I I think, makes it even a little bit clearer. Read that same verse in that translation. It says, The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. See, genuine repentance means you're going to change. It means you're going to admit that you're headed in the wrong direction and that you have sinned before a living God. And if you don't admit that you are fundamentally a sinner, that your ways are the wrong ways, then you truly don't understand what forgiveness of sins is really all about. There are so many Christian people in this country that sometimes you wonder if as many people that claim they are Christian in this country are indeed Christians. Why are we in such a mess? Why does it seem that everything's going away from God's law instead of towards it? And for a lot of people that claim to be Christian, it is this understanding of the fact that they're sinners that they seem to be missing. Because for a lot of us, we're not really that bad. Now, I have nothing against the sinner's prayer. It's very well worded and and it's got all the elements in it that you need to understand what salvation's all about. But for a lot of people, they think that if you just lead someone through a sinner's prayer, then they're saved. And you can parrot anybody in what they're saying. So if someone says, you know, say you're a sinner and admit that you sinned, you can say, yeah, I admit I'm a sinner. But inside, you haven't admitted anything. Because what he's saying, what Paul is saying here is you need godly sorrow for your sins. That's the realization that you have created a breach from God and you have done the wrong thing. But that is really hard for us to admit because most of us don't think we're really that bad. Particularly if you have grown up in the church. I was saved when I was about 10 years old, I think. I admitted I was a sinner. I knew I was a sinner at 10 years old because I think fundamentally we all know we've sinned. We know that we've disobeyed along the way. We're not perfect people. We all can admit that kind of general sin. But I also say at 10 years old, I wasn't like the worst sinner on the planet. I didn't really know that much about sin. The older you get, the more you understand it, don't you? Because you get wrapped up in it 
Now, to people that get very involved in sin and really do break a lot of God's law, their repentance is usually genuine and full of godly sorrow because it's not hard for them to admit that they've messed up their life. Uh, the evidence is all around. They know they've messed up their lives. Their marriages have failed. Their jobs have been over. They, you know, they, they're just in a mess. That's easy to admit sometimes because, good heavens, how can you justify where you are sometimes when you're in the gutter? It's like the, the prodigal son. He knew he was in a pigsty. He knew he'd messed up his life. Repentance was genuine. But when you grow up in the church and when you basically lived a good lifestyle and you kind of had everything you needed, you don't view yourself that way. We can point to all the people in the gutter and we know they need repentance, but we're not in the gutter. So we're not that bad. So when you talk about sin, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I know I'm a general sinner, but, but I'm really not that much of a sinner. And so repentance often is not accompanied with godly sorrow or true change because we fundamentally don't even think we need to change. We're all actually going in the right direction. I come to church every week. You know, I'm even doing something in the church and I do all kinds of good deeds and, you know, I'm just, I do everything I'm supposed to do. But then over the years, you start to see these people kind of slip away and you wonder what happened to them and why, why the energy they had at the beginning, they seem to lose. It's because they never really fundamentally had that kind of godly sorrow for their sins where they truly admitted they needed God in their lives. But just out in California over the holidays, and one thing I noticed out there, and I think I might have mentioned it, those people don't need God. They have everything. There's so much money out there, you can't even shake a stick at it. It's, uh, the, what they have to pay for a home is, is sin right there. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous what, how much money seems to be out there. God doesn't need to be a part of their lives because they have everything. And so the idea that they're sinners in need of change is kind of a wishy-washy attitude towards sin with a lot of them. Eh, you know, I know I sin. Nobody's perfect. That seems to be the mantra of everybody. Oh, nobody's perfect. Well, no, nobody's perfect, but that doesn't mean you can't be saved or that you need to be saved. When you get comfortable and you think that you and yourself have all you need, it's time to understand what true repentance is really all about. Because true repentance admits that you need to come under God's authority. That he is the ruler of your life. That his word is what controls your life. Not what you want, not the things that you have, not what the culture tells you you need. But you are driven completely by the word of God. And if that is not the fundamental basis of your life, then you really haven't grasped yet what repentance is really all about. Because as long as you want to run your life by your own rules, even when you're doing well, those are not God's rules. And if we aren't doing the will of God for our lives, we're fundamentally not going in the right direction. 
And we can mumble all kinds of repentant-type statements. But if they don't come from a heart that truly recognizes it's sinful and going in the wrong direction, then we don't really grasp what forgiveness is truly all about. To give you an example, let me give you two people to read about this week in the Bible. One is King Saul and one is King David. And Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 5, he's instructed by God to go out and kill all the Amalekites. These are people they're at war with. They're a group of people that have been at war with God, Israel's God, for, for ages. And now it's time for the judgment to come in the day of reckoning. And God tells Saul, I want you to go out there in battle and I want you to kill all of them. I don't want you to just kill all the soldiers. I want you to kill all the animals as well. You get rid of everything connected to these people. And Saul goes out and he does win the battle and he does do that. Almost. He lets the king live and he keeps the best animals alive. And then he's off thinking he's done what God told him to do. But God had a prophet. Samuel was the prophet. And Samuel comes to Saul to confront him over the fact that he hasn't truly done the will of God. And so when he gets to Saul, he says, God told you to destroy everything about the Amalekites. And he finds Saul at a place where he's actually building a monument to this great victory for himself about what a good job he's done. And so Saul says to Samuel, I did do everything God told me to do. I did kill them all. And Samuel answers, well then, if you kill them all, why am I hearing so many sheep in the background? You know, where's that noise coming from? And suddenly, well, yeah, the sheep. Well, I did let the sheep live. But only did that because the soldiers wanted them. And really, we're going to use them to sacrifice. You know, that we're going to do a good thing for God, and and then God will be happy because we're going to sacrifice. And he goes, well, what about the king? Well, the king, you know, I, I left him alive too because that's a sign of victory. And Samuel says to him, you didn't do what God told you to do. And now the result is the kingdom's taken away from you. You're no longer going to be the king. He's going to take it away from you, your family, descendants, and he's going to give it to another person. And then Saul repents. He says, I'm sorry, I, I, I know I did wrong. Uh, please, please, you know, stay with me. Have God come to me. You know, I'm, I'm upset for what I did. But the judgment still stood. And Saul did not get the kingdom back. David, on the other hand, in 2 Samuel 12, commits a sin when he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He not only commits adultery, he actually has Bathsheba's husband killed uh, by sending him to the front lines. And again, God sends a prophet to confront the king about his sin. This time it's Nathan, and Nathan comes to David, and he tells him a story, uh, and David recognizes that uh, the person was wrong, and he says, that person should be judged. And Nathan says, well, that story's about you. You had everything. God gave you everything, and you still needed the one thing you couldn't have. And so now God's going to judge you too. But David has a very different response than Saul. He doesn't start to give all the reasons why he did it and justify himself. David looks at Nathan and says, you're right. 
And he recognizes who he's truly sinned against. He says, I've sinned against God. And I recognize that. And I admit it. And I'm willing to take the consequences. If you want to read how he really confessed, read Psalm 51, which is his prayer at that time, where he admitted he had godly sorrow for what he had done. The judgment still stood, but he was reconciled to God because he truly repented. And how do we know that one's repentance was genuine godly sorrow and the other one wasn't? It wasn't by the way they said it or what they did. It wasn't that Saul acted arrogant or Sam or David cried a lot. It was in what followed after, the change in behavior. Saul said he was sorry for what he did, but then he went right back to it. He said, your, your kingdom's going to be gone, another's going to be given to you're going to be given to another. Then he spent the rest of his career trying to kill David, who was going to take his place. He would not accept the judgment. David, on the other hand, changed. You never read again that he committed adultery with anybody. Didn't seem like he sent anybody out to get murdered. And he changed his attitude towards God. He accepted the judgment. And true reconciliation could take place between God and David because he truly admitted that he had sinned against God and he needed to change. See, for us to be reconciled to God, there has to be genuine repentance. Because forgiveness in and of itself isn't just forgiving us for what we've done, it's reconciling us back to God and establishing a relationship with the Father so that we are now in relationship with him where we never could be in relationship before because that relationship had been broken by sin. And now that sin has been taken care of, we can be in a relationship with God because we have admitted we need a relationship. We admit that we have sinned and we have broken God's laws and we fundamentally need to change and turn around. See, that's genuine repentance. When you say, I'm a sinner, not because someone told you you were a sinner, or you know that's what you're supposed to say, or uh, we all know we're not perfect, so we admit we sinned. It is the recognition you're a sinner. You have broken the law of God. That relationship you had with God is over. You don't have one. And the direction of your life is not led by the Holy Spirit because you are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But when you admit, yes, I know that relationship is broken, and I know it's not God's fault, it is my fault. I do want to run my own life. I do like to live by my own rules. I want life to be the way I want it. And when it doesn't go that way, then I don't even need God in my life if he's going to mess it up. Because I know where I'm going and I know what I want. That attitude has to change. We say the only life I ever need is one where God directs it. And he takes me to the place he wants me to go and not the place where I want to go. Yes. And when you recognize that, you repent different. And then you're baptized. And in those waters, you leave that old nature, that rebellious nature behind. 
and you come up a new person, now able to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can accomplish the will of God for your life and do what you're supposed to do. If there's no true repentance, there's no true forgiveness because there's no true change. And if you fundamentally never changed your lifestyle, then you probably don't truly understand what repentance is all about. Because we want God to forgive us without really changing. God, I believe in your blood, so you know, you just take away all my sins and then kind of just leave me alone. And so I can live my life, but that's not the way it's going to go. We're not forgiven so we can do what we want. We're forgiven so we can do what he wants. And if we truly understand genuine repentance and genuine forgiveness, then we have a relationship with God that changes our lives. And the first way that it is obvious our life has been changed is the way we deal with other people. Because the Bible says if God has forgiven us, then how much more should we be able to forgive each other? And genuine forgiveness and repentance are tied up not only with the blood of Jesus Christ taking away our sins and giving us right standing with God, it's also in the forgiveness that we extend to other people when we have been wrong. Luke 17, verse 3, puts it this way. Jesus is talking. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. See, we follow the same pattern towards each other that Jesus follows with us. If Jesus has forgiven us, then how much more do we forgive each other? But if we're going to forgive each other, we have to do it the biblical way. Because, put that verse back up there, verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 3. Because it's important to really get what this verse is saying. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, Rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. We have in our culture today a new concept that's called universal forgiveness. We don't just like unconditional forgiveness, I should say. Unconditional forgiveness between us and God, but we want unconditional forgiveness between us and other people which means that we are sometimes expected to forgive people who have not actually repented. And then the question becomes, do you have to forgive people who have not actually repented? Is it biblical to forgive them anyway? Or do we withhold forgiveness from them? Because there's a lot of pressure to forgive everybody. Because Jesus said that we ought to forgive everybody, and we should forgive everybody. But how do we forgive everybody? We follow the same pattern with each other that Jesus showed us is the way. Can you really reconcile with somebody who's a sinner and who keeps on sinning and hasn't repented? What does it mean 
to forgive each other. Because that can, that can be the hard part. And I think part of the reason we get mixed up here is we don't really understand what the word is saying. As we just read in, in Luke 17, he says, when someone sins against you, now, this is where forgiveness has its foundation, in the fact that someone has sinned against you. This is talking about real sin. And how is sin defined? Sin is defined by the word of God, not by what you think is sin. So what he's talking about here is when someone has actually sinned against you, that means they have broken God's law in relationship to you. These are real sins. You didn't do anything wrong. The other person sinned. And real sin is the violation of God's word. It's cut and dry. They, they did the wrong thing to you. Adultery. That's a real sin. When you're in a marriage and someone commits adultery, you've been sinned against. If someone in your family is murdered... Murder is a sin, and you've been sinned against. If you've ever been raped, if you've been on the receiving end of abuse, if someone has stolen something from you, if you've been the recipient of slander and lies and gossip that have fundamentally changed your life, fornication, when somebody robbed you of your innocence, kidnapping, I think of sex trade that we have now, these are sins against you. This is not the same category as the sins you come up with. I don't like the way he said it. And so I'm not talking to him until he changes his tone of voice. That's not a sin. It's annoying. You may not like it, but that's, he didn't sin against you. He just did it a way you didn't like. Or when you just miscommunicate with people. I told them to be here at 6 o'clock, and they are always late. And I'm just not going to hang around with them anymore if they're going to always be late because, you know, I don't need this. I don't need this in my life. So I don't need these people in my life. They can't keep time. Not keeping time is also not a sin. It's not listed there in Paul's list. Again, it's annoying. You may not want them as your best friend. That's okay. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who have been sinned against and the necessity for a reconciliation in a relationship that is fundamentally broken. And it's broken because of sin, not just because of annoyance or, or things you don't like. Sin has stepped into the picture and sin has caused a problem. I remember a lady that came into my office many years ago. She was raised a Christian. She had married a Christian man. They had been raised in the church together. And, and she just thought her life was going to take a certain direction because they had done everything the right way. She loved her husband. He loved her. And now she was expecting her first child. She had actually had the child when she came to see me. But towards the end of her pregnancy, she had some issues. She had problems. She had to, you know, get off her feet and, and fundamentally rest uh, so that everything would go well. 
And in doing that, it came to her attention that her husband had committed adultery. It rocked her world because he was a Christian man. She thought she had a perfect marriage and then found out she didn't. He committed adultery, but there wasn't much she could do about it. It wasn't that he fell in love with anybody. It was just one of those fleeting things where he just did it. But after they had the baby, he didn't see any reason why the family couldn't stay together. In fact, he actually told her he didn't believe in divorce. Would that he wouldn't have believed in adultery, but, you know, but divorce was the bad one. He couldn't believe in divorce. All the other sins, okay, you know, sometimes we get these crazy blind spots that don't even make sense. But he didn't believe in divorce, so he didn't want a divorce. She went to her pastor at the time. She was hurt. She was angry. She was broken. She didn't know what to do. And her pastor said, well, you have to forgive him. Because Jesus said, we have to forgive 70 times 7. So you have to forgive him. But the problem was, he'd never repented. In fact, he basically had done the opposite. He blamed her for the problem. If she hadn't been on bed rest, his needs could have been met and he wouldn't have needed anybody else. So it was her fault for not doing what she needed to do. And then she needed to forgive anyway because she's the one who's supposed to be submissive and do everything that uh, the Bible says to do. And a submissive wife forgives her husband. He never apologized for what he did. And because she was hurt and because she was broken and because the sting of that realization that her whole marriage was not what she thought it was, she had difficulty forgiving him. And then pretty soon the church turned on her because she was unable to forgive. And if you're a true Christian, you forgive. So what's your problem? Why are you still angry with him? You need to lay that down. You need to just put that in God's hands and let the Holy Spirit take care of you and, you know, work that marriage back. After his third commission of adultery, she did finally leave him. And she walked away from the church and never came back. Is that really what Jesus was saying? Do we have to forgive people that have not repented, who have grossly sinned against us, and left us hurting and broken and mad and upset? Are we the bad guys if, if we're not ready to extend forgiveness? Or is the pattern that true repentance needs to come before forgiveness can actually be extended? See, if we forgive people without repentance, then we allow sin to continue. And the purpose of God in our life is never to allow sin to continue. It's always to stop sin and bring people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we confuse our terms and get people all mixed up because we don't use the right word. And we tend to use forgiveness in the wrong way. We say we need to forgive because we know if we don't, 
that anger, that bitterness, that hurt that is often there continues to grow. And that's true. We do need to get rid of that. But it doesn't come from by forgiving the other person. It comes from the healing power of Jesus Christ. And I guess the best example for that is the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. We've used Joseph before. Joseph was sinned against by his brothers. They never liked him because he had the wrong mother. They, they treated him badly when they were together. But they eventually sold him as a slave. They lied to their father about what happened to him. Nobody ever came looking for Joseph. He sold as a slave into Egypt. He ends up doing his best there, but then betrayed in Egypt. He ends up in prison. He spends years in prison. Nobody helps him until eventually the Lord steps in and through a series of circumstances elevates Joseph from the prison to, to the second place of prominence in Egypt and he becomes second only to Pharaoh because of a dream he had about seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. He's put in this high position in Egypt. Times are good. He's given a wife. He has two sons. And when he names his sons, you see that the Lord has really done a work in his life. In verse 51 of Genesis 41, it says, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. See, the Holy Spirit and time working together allowed Joseph to heal. And he began to heal on the inside. And all the hurt, all the pain, all the betrayal, everything that they had done to him was removed. In fact, it got to the point where he could see God's hand working in the situation. He was able to say, you all meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was in this situation. And with that, he was able to get a whole different perspective on the problem and what had happened. And so he didn't stay angry. He didn't stay bitter. He didn't stay upset because he had been healed of all of that pain. And that meant that by the time his brothers got there, he was able to extend forgiveness because he didn't have that anger in there anymore. He didn't have that upset anymore. And what he desired more than anything else was for reconciliation to take place. He wanted the family put back together and all of the old hurts and all of the old problems to be forgiven so that they became unified as a family. But to do that, again, he didn't just blanket forgive them. When his brothers came, he watched. He had to know they were different. He had to know that they had not kept that same anger in them and that they weren't going to sell out anybody else or, or treat their father with the great disrespect that they had. He had to see that they had repented too. So he set up a series of tests to figure that out. And when he became convinced that they had indeed repented and changed, 
Then he revealed himself. And the family was indeed reconciled and put back together. See, Joseph had to be healed of his hurt. But they had to repent of what they had done wrong. And when those two go together, reconciliation is possible because that's the way we are reconciled to God. He laid down his life for us so that we could have the way to salvation. And when we wake up and repent and realize we need him in our lives, then we change. Forgiveness begins with healing. When someone has sinned against you, when you have been wronged, you need to spend time in the presence of the Lord, allowing him to heal you. When you've been betrayed, when you've been hurt, when when you've just been treated the wrong way, and that sting on the inside is there, Nobody can take that away except God. All the psychiatry in the world talking about it is not going to heal it. Only the Lord can heal it. And he can replace vengeance with love, bitterness with happiness, pain with joy, anger with peace. As he begins to put back the broken pieces of our lives and we are together. He makes it possible then for us to pray for our enemies, to pray for those who have hurt us, to live with a hope that one day reconciliation will come and to find new family and friends in Jesus Christ and his church in the meantime. See, reconciliation is only possible when repentance has taken place. And when we extend repentance or forgiveness without repentance, then we allow evil to continue and nothing ever changes. The blood of Jesus Christ was necessary for the satisfaction of God to be met. God was angry with us. God didn't appreciate the sin that we committed. But the blood of Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God so he could deal with us in love. And when we allow ourselves to be healed from the wounds and the problems that have been done to us, then we are able to reconcile with each other that way as well. Don't keep a cycle of sin going. If you haven't reconciled with the Lord first, you need to learn to repent and truly admit he needs to run your life. And then we need to reconcile with each other by admitting when we've wronged each other and allowing the Spirit to heal us so the day that that confession comes, we can extend repentance. So as we stand and close this service and sing, if you would like to come and have someone pray with you or just come and spend some time with the Lord, move out of your seat and come down and say, first of all, Maybe my relationship with God isn't what it should be. I have never truly repented the right way, and I know it. I just repented to cover my bases. I want to get to heaven, but I really don't want to change. It's time to truly repent. And if you have been on the receiving end of the sin of other people, and you need that healing inside, come and let the Holy Spirit 
begin to heal the wounds so that you can approach people without bitterness, anger, and upset and be reconciled to that day. Would you come? Sure, now, for sin is running rampant. And as sin grows, sin's destructive powers result in hurting people. All the yoga poses in the world, all the therapy in the world, all of the mind games we play to feel better, all the medication in the world, all the drugs in the world cannot take away the pain of being on the receiving end of someone's sin. And we have a culture that is angry and upset and suicidal because they've been on the receiving end of so much sin. We have the answer, and it's the cross. We need to get over our reluctance to tell people the answer to their needs. Jesus Christ can heal. He heals the brokenhearted. He sets the captive free. He did it for you, and he can do it for everyone else. But if that answer doesn't get through, then all this self-medication to the hurts of society are just going to make it worse. It is only at the cross where we're reconciled to God. And it is only through that reconciliation that we can reconcile to each other. People want to see in the people of God a love for each other that produces change. And that means we hold people accountable for their sins, but we make great room for them to be forgiven. And when God forgives them, so do we. And we are a people pulled together, not because of our great personalities and wonderful love, it's through the cross. Take that message into the world because you're going to find hurting people everywhere. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you made a way for us, that you didn't leave us in our sins and condemn us, but you brought us to new life. And when we recognize our need for you and confess our sins and running away from you, you made the way to reconcile us to God and forgive us. And help us to be healed of the hurts of others as well. And open our hearts to be reconciled to them as well. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the way you've made. And give us that boldness now to tell the hurting people we meet that there is a way for that hurt to be gone. And that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Keep us now as we go in your grace. Open our eyes to see the harvest field out there. We thank you again for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Tell someone about Jesus Christ this week.